Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Before we kick off, we want to remind you there's a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout, and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers. And it's been great to see so many people signing up with this code. Yes, there's loads of premium content there for you. Videos, features, interviews, and an amazing archive of work going back donkey's years. POD20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in the world of science. I'm Valerie Jimison. I'm creative director of New Scientist Events. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporters Leah Crane and Jessica Hamsalou. Hello. 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 Coming up on this week's show, as NASA announces its plans to put a man and a woman on the surface of the moon by 2024, we look at the rather significant challenges ahead. It feels pretty unlikely to me that it will happen in the time frame. I think it will certainly happen eventually. That was Leia on her expectations of the Artemis moon program. We also hear about how water may be two liquids in one, how China is taking the lead on climate action, and we preview a big evolution special in the magazine this week. But first, a personal question. How did you all sleep last night? Uh, I slept pretty well, except I stayed up too late watching Netflix. Um, I've got addicted to this German time travel show called Dark. And, uh, you know, it's making me dream in sort of pidgin German, weird German dreams. Uh, I'm sure that will feature in uh, the uh, the sci-fi slot at some point. I hope so. Uh, Jess, how about you? Um, probably better not to ask. It's not that easy to sleep when you're eight months pregnant. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> we cover the mystery of sleep and dreams a lot in the magazine. And the mystery is basically, why do we sleep and dream? What is the point of it? And this week, Jess, you've covered some new work looking at how the function of sleep changes in our early lives. Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting because despite mountains of research into sleep, we still don't really know what it's doing. Everyone will agree it's good for you. It's important for repairing the brain. It's important for learning and a lack of sleep can be harmful. Um, but we don't really know what, what exactly is the most important function when. And, and this new research is suggesting that the, the most important functions seem to change as we as we grow up. And 
might be different at different stages in life. And the study you've written about in this week's magazine looked at the change in the function of sleep in infants and toddlers. Yes. um, In this case, they took a computational approach. So they gathered lots of data that we already have on how long people sleep, brain size, rate of brain growth, brain metabolism, and the amount of time we spend in REM sleep. And um, by plugging all this data into a computer model, they were able to test some theories. And they found that there seems to be this shift at the age of around two and a half, where the predominant role of sleep changes from one of growth to one of learning and repair. So, you know, when newborn children sort of sleep all the time, um, I mean, sometimes that's called the fourth trimester, isn't it? Because babies are still thought to effectively be in the womb. Um, Isn't there a suggestion that human babies are all born premature compared to other primates? I've heard that theory as well. Um, And it is true that a lot of brain development happens after you're born. Um, There are estimates that the brain kind of doubles in size in your first year of life. And it makes so it makes sense that babies would need more sleep because a lot of this brain development happens while we're asleep. Um, but the type of sleep that babies get is also quite different to that of adults. So babies spend around 40 to 50 percent of their sleep in REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep. And this is when we tend to have our most vivid dreams. And it's thought that the brain is kind of replaying events from the day so that we can learn from them and build new memories. Um, but adults only spend about 15 percent of sleep time in REM sleep. I love the idea that newborn babies are dreaming about their time in the womb. <laughs> They've got nothing else, no other experience. So that's, that's what they dream. Of. Um, OK, Jess, we know that young infants, they get much more REM sleep than adults. And we know that in adults, REM sleep is when the brain is doing its learning. But what have they found in this study you've reported? What they found is that before the age of around two and a half, the main function of sleep appears to be this this brain growth that we mentioned. So the brain's growing in size. There's a a lot of new connections being formed between brain cells and there's a lot of rewiring going on. But there's this shift in toddlers where the main function seems to change and from this learning to the repair of damage. And the researchers liken it to this, the kind of freezing of water to ice because it's such a sharp transition And they only had a relatively small amount of data to go on, so it's from less than 100 brains. Um, But it did appear to happen pretty consistently around this age of two and a half. I found it kind of frightening, actually, that even toddlers are having to repair damage to their brains. I mean, I can understand, you know, why my brain would need to repair damage to itself. But, you know, what about little kids? Well, uh, I think as any parent will know, there's a lot going on at this age. So, um for two and a half year olds this is the age when children start sleeping for longer and there's a lot going on in terms of developing their vision and their language um and one of the research i spoke to said that the the brain kind of goes from this stage of build 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 to kind of honing and cleaning things up and there's more of a focus on the quality of the connections in the brain rather than quantity but also this kind of this repair system that happens in the brain uh, it's something that we've um discovered quite recently actually this um waste disposal system that happens to clear toxic substances out of the brain while we sleep and these could be byproducts of metabolism for example or in older people it's proteins like beta amyloid which has been linked to alzheimer's disease it's called the glymphatic system and there are these incredible videos online of just how these fluids pulse through the through the brain to push these products out of the brain and that kind of clearance of waste happens when we're asleep and obviously it's happening in very young children as well Tell us more about REM sleep and non-REM sleep. REM sleep is um, is so cool because it's when people tend to experience these rapid eye movements. Um, we don't really know why. Uh, some people think it's because we're kind of watching our dreams unfold. I've heard that one, but um, 
other people have said that's not true, that it's more that our eyes change in REM sleep when the scene in the dream changes. Um, and they think that um, because if you look at brain activity during REM sleep, there are bits that are similar to when people are awake and are, are shown or asked to remember an image. So they, it could be this set change in the dream is when the eyes move. I mean, I guess we never really know what a person is seeing when they're dreaming. But um, there was this, I remember seeing this one study where um, researchers were monitoring this man who was sleeping and he he told them afterwards that he was dreaming about smoking a cigarette. So they think that when he kind of looked to one side, he was looking at the, the dream ashtray to put his dream cigarette out. <laughs> <laughs> we have no idea if that's what he was actually doing. But we do also dream during non-REM sleep. The dreams during REM sleep are more kind of, exciting vivid and bizarre and um, it's generally thought that REM sleep is more important for learning and memory um, and, and like replaying of events that we mentioned before but there is some evidence that the, the memories are kind of consolidated laid down in the brain during non-REM sleep and non-REM sleep also seems to be important for for health but um, to be honest there's not really a clear consensus people are still debating exactly which bits of sleep are important for what. And there's a lot we still need to learn about what happens in the sleeping brain. Have you heard that factoid, Jess, that um, there's, there's a researcher, I think it was a German team, and they got loads of people together who were able to lucid dream, who could control their dreams, um, and had them practice a new game that they'd just learned, and then had, had them practice it during their sleep in their lucid dreams. And the people who practiced the game while they were asleep were better at it the next day compared to people who just had a good night's sleep. So they, they literally trained in their sleep. Yeah, I, I think they were, were they throwing some rubbish into a bin or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it was a, I think it was a kind of darts game. Oh. They're imagining playing darts. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? I, yeah. I remember when I was looking into this before, some people were suggesting that you could kind of you could maybe use this as part of rehabilitation in a way. Like if you if you kind of practice using a limb, then that might help you learn to use that limb again or or even athletes kind of training in their sleep. I, I don't know if this is actually going to help you, but it's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Anyway, but this study on toddlers, does does it help get us get at the function of sleep and dreaming anymore? Um, unfortunately, not really. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating to see. But we don't, we still don't. There's a lot we don't know. That's our sci-fi alert. This is when we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. And this week we've got something very cool. Yeah, super cool. Super cool water. This is really weird, isn't it? It's possible to cool water down to below its freezing point, but without allowing it to freeze. Yeah, how how do they do that? Because... You know, you can imagine how you can superheat water if you just seal it up and stop it turning to steam. But how do you stop it freezing when you chill it right down? So, well, water freezes when the water molecules start to form a crystal of ice. And this happens around a point called a seed crystal or a nucleus. So what you have to do is just get rid of these seeds. And you can do that by reverse osmosis or by chemical purification. So animals that have antifreeze in their blood, they do it like this because they have a, a protein that stops the spread of these nucleation points in their blood and stops yeah, them right. freezing. Exactly. But that only gets you so far. It only gets you so cold. 
What's happened now is that scientists have used lasers to chill water down to between about minus 93 degrees C and minus 33 degrees C without it freezing at all. And what they found is that there seem to be regions in the water of different density. So it looks like water exists as two different liquids simultaneously. Whoa, I, I find that really difficult to get my head yeah. around. So, I mean, is it that one kind of water is thicker than the other, but both of them exist together? Yeah, that's what it seems. Um, so some water molecules are packed more closely together and others spaced further apart. Water is a, a really extraordinary stuff. I worked in a lab once where they studied water structure at an atomic level and there's loads of really weird things about water. And we take it all for granted, but liquid water below four degrees is denser than ice, which is why ice floats on cold water. But chemically, it's a surprising thing to find. And of course, it dissolves a huge range of other substances. Yeah, if I remember correctly, isn't it called a universal solvent? Uh, yeah, and uh, it's incredibly good at absorbing heat. Uh, if it wasn't as good as that, uh, all the water would have already boiled off the planet. You know that game where kids ask, what kind of water do you like best, snow or liquid water? Well, now you can say, well, actually, I prefer supercooled water at minus 93 when it's in two states at once. Yeah, <laughs> clever clogs in the, yeah. in the playground there. Um, and all of this, though, has implications for the everyday world because what happens at those cold temperatures influences how it behaves at room temperature and in life processes too. Do you know, I just love how something so common that we take for granted, as you said, Rowan, that we think is so simple, it's just made of two different atoms, it's so deep and rich and complex. Well, yeah, I have to drag ourselves to the, the science fiction <laughs> part of the segment now. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So there's an episode of Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, where there's a kind of exotic water that makes them all um, intoxicated and, and very amorous. Uh, but I'm going to select a, a Kurt Vonnegut novel called Cat's Cradle. And in that, the, in that book, there's a substance called Ice-9, which is an alternative structure of water that's solid at room temperature and becomes a seed crystal upon contact with any ordinary water. And it causes the, that liquid water to instantly transform into more of this Ice-9 stuff. we want to tell you about some of the online events coming up. On 8th of October, we're tackling quantum computing with Ilias Khan, founder of Cambridge Quantum Computing. This technology promises to transform everything from drug discovery to machine learning and cybersecurity, and it's fast becoming a reality. You'll be able to hear the very latest about the development that could quite possibly change the world. And on October the 15th, we've got psychologist and podcaster Kimberly Wilson. It's her guide to protecting long-term brain health. That's how to keep your brain healthy, even in a pandemic. That's October the 15th. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out all about our live online events and to watch archived events. Next up, this week in the magazine, it's a special issue all about evolution. Basically, it's 13 things you might not know about evolution. Yeah, there's loads of good stuff here, but I just wanted to pick out a couple of things. Uh, first, epigenetics. So this is the study of how genes are modified. That's how they're turned on or off or made to produce more or less of the protein they code for by little chemical tags that are attached to the DNA. Uh, and the interesting thing about these tags is that they can be added according 
to the environment you experience, and then they're passed on to the next generation. So it's a way of modifying genes without changing the genes themselves. And uh, people get excited about this because we used to think that only genetic change to the DNA itself could be inherited. Um, Jess, you've written a lot about this over the years, haven't you? What's what's your favourite example of epigenetics? I'd probably say that our understanding of epigenetics has helped us to see that the health of a fetus or a baby is not just down to the mother and it's a shared responsibility. So women who are trying to conceive or are pregnant are constantly bombarded with health advice about what they should be eating, drinking, what they should be avoiding, etc. But men are generally spared from this. But we've, yeah, we've started... Yeah, I can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the last five to ten years, we've um, started to see evidence that the behaviour of a man can affect these epigenetic markers on DNA in his sperm. And this can affect the embryo and it could have health impacts for the baby as well. So especially things like obesity and smoking so far seem to play a role. And those things could be linked to miscarriage or low birth weight, for example. So it's been really interesting to see this research develop, finally, even though it's still in the early stages, um, because fetus and baby's health has for so long just been seen to be the sole responsibility of the mother and hopefully we can kind of see that message change a bit in the coming years as more research comes out. Rowan do you have a favourite bit of epigenetics? Well speaking as someone who today so far has only drunk black coffee my favourite bit is the finding that drinking coffee causes epigenetic changes to your DNA and some studies suggest that people who drink coffee are less likely to get certain illnesses like heart disease that could be because of the, these epigenetic tweaks that coffee has on us. Ron, are you still doing that fasting thing? So is that why you've only drunk black coffee today? Yeah, yeah. So the, <laughs> the fasting thing, um, I got this off our colleague Graham Lawton. Uh, there's good evidence that if you fast for uh, about 16 hours in every 24 hours, the body goes into this cleanup mode and starts digesting broken bits of proteins and cells that it finds lying around. Uh, things that might otherwise start to clog up and you know maybe cause health problems. So fasting is a good way to clear this stuff up and it's supposed to make you live longer. Having said that, I did see that the uh, oldest woman in the world, Japanese woman who's 117, did say she has a weakness for chocolate and Coke. So she doesn't seem to have been <laughs> fasting. Yeah, that's Coke uh, as in the fizzy drink, just, just to be clear <laughs> there. <laughs> um, I saw that she likes doing calculations and calligraphy uh, which is interesting because you often hear that it's good to do things to keep your brain active and to keep hand-eye coordination going. So she's doing that. Okay, but let's get back to the coffee. Um, mm. What's it doing in the um, epigenetic sense? Right, so the tags that are attached to DNA are these methyl chemical tags. And in coffee drinkers, the tags tend to be attached to genes that play roles in digestion and they help process harmful chemicals and control inflammation. What's interesting, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether these epigenetic marks get wiped off during reproduction, about whether there's this kind of resetting at the embryo stage. But now it looks like there's quite a lot of evidence that they don't all get wiped off. Yeah, and, and some of them that don't get swiped off do seem to be implicated in brain conditions like uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, as well as genes involved in metabolic disorders such as obesity. But basically, epigenetics is a trick that evolution has come up with to allow organisms to adapt to local environments more quickly than if they had to wait through regular, slow genetic change and adaptation. 
One of the other stories in the evolution special this week that really jumped out at me was that genes don't just come from your parents. Yeah, well, only if you're a bacterium or a yeast. That's the phenomenon of horizontal gene transfer. So if you think of a family tree, the genes go sideways as well as downwards through the generations. This is really common in bacteria, isn't it? Um, It's probably one of the reasons they can evolve so quickly, because these useful genes are getting swapped and shared around. Um, That's probably behind the rapid spread of antibiotic resistance as well. Yeah, and, uh, and it turns out it might also go on in yeast too, which are far more complex than bacteria. Another thing the special issue covers, um, which you touch on there, is the speed of evolution. So I think most people think it's something that takes millions of years, but it can happen really quickly. There's a story in the news this week that people on Cape Verde Islands in the Atlantic have evolved resistance to malaria quite rapidly which is another great example that shows we're still evolving, even though we tend to think of it as something that happened in ancient times. There's loads more on evolution in this week's special of the magazine. Do check it out. And now it's time for a climate hope or doom, where we take a look at the latest news to do with climate change and decide if we feel the glass is half full or half empty. And this week we actually have some rather exciting news. Yeah, this week at the UN, the Chinese President Xi Jinping said that China would be carbon neutral before 2060. That's massive news, isn't it? Because China is by far the world's biggest emitter of carbon dioxide, accounting for 28% of the world's emissions. Yeah, it's really encouraging. China has said before that it intended to peak its emissions around 2030, and now it said it will do that before 2030. So it's really firming up its commitment and its ambition for action on climate. 2020 has been such a terrible year for lots of things as well as action. (laughs) But just for lots of things as well as for action on climate change. So at last, this really does seem hopeful. It's unalloyed hope. Actually, it's slightly alloyed. This oh, way. here it comes. <laughs> yeah, only slightly. Um, so you remember the Paris Agreement says we need to be at net zero emissions globally by 2050 if we want to have a chance of staying under 1.5 degrees of warming. And now China said it will be at net zero by 2060 or before 2060. So, you know, that's not what the Paris Agreement wants. So we're going to have to hope that it's that this is quite significantly before 2060. Yeah, the sooner the better on this. Yeah, for lots of reasons. Um, And also the statement, though, was a very... It was more of a diplomatic announcement rather than an actual plan. So we don't know how China is going to get to carbon neutrality. It might be that it doesn't scale down its emissions from farming and heavy industry and coal as much as it needs to, but instead it it offsets that with... like It could do a massive forest planting... Um, campaign in like South America or in Africa. Yeah, so we'll have to see about that. But that'd be similar to the UK's plans, which is not so much that we'd not be emitting any greenhouse gases by 2050, but those that we do emit are cancelled out by carbon removal projects. Yeah, and China still has a huge amount of coal-fired power stations that are still being used and, and actually still being built. So it does have a massive job on its hands. I saw one estimate that China would need to spend $5.5 trillion or about $180 billion annually to get to net zero by 2050. That sounds like 
a lot, you know, even by, you know, we've seen some pretty, pretty big numbers being bandied around, you know, to do with coronavirus, etc. But $180 billion annually still sounds like a lot of money. It does sound like a lot, but China is spending a lot. It could do it. A lot is still unclear, like how the emissions are going to be counted. You know, China is still in the middle of the biggest infrastructure project the world's ever seen. That's the Belt and Road Initiative. That's 7,000 projects in 70 countries. That's projected to cost $8 trillion by 2050. But still, we've had nothing from the United States in the way of international climate leadership in recent years, have we? Uh, No, we haven't. Um, I did wonder how President Trump would react to this statement from China. And I had the unpleasant job of checking his Twitter feed before we recorded this to see if he'd reacted yet or not. But no, not yet. So, yeah, it's China that's taking the global lead on climate action and sending it with this statement. It's sending a really important signal to other countries and to industry and to investment that net carbon zero is a real target to get to. Well, good luck in checking Trump's Twitter feed. But apart from that, this is actually a great story. So it's definitely a climate hope segment. Hooray, at last. Hurrah. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That, of course, was Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon in 1969. No one's been back to the moon since 1972 and no woman has ever been there. But that will or could soon change, maybe in the next four years. NASA has formally announced details of the Artemis programme. If you're a classics fan, you'll know that Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo and a goddess of the moon. So you'll see what NASA's done there. Uh, The aim is to put a man and a woman on the moon in 2024, which is amazing. But is it doable? I spoke to our space reporter, Leia Crane. So, Leia, NASA says it's going to cost $28 billion for the whole Artemis programme, and they need $3.2 billion now to develop the landing system. And what they've got is, what, $600 million? So, you know, first off, do you think this is going to happen in the time frame they've they've said? It feels pretty unlikely to me that it will happen in the time frame. I think it will certainly happen eventually. but. It's unlikely that NASA is going to get that enormous pay raise that they're asking for, uh, especially right now. Right. And also, it's a hard thing to do, and four years is not a long time. Why have they given themselves this deadline then? If it's, you know, it is obviously a very hard thing to do. So, why have they given themselves a, a deadline at which they look like they might fail? Well, they haven't necessarily given themselves a deadline. The deadline was uh, given by the White House. So, right. it is more political than practical, I would say. The boss of NASA, Jim Brindenstein, has said that they could purchase the landing system from a commercial supplier rather than develop it themselves. So, you know, there are some options out there. Blue Origin, that's Jeff Bezos's uh, space company, they have a lunar lander in development. So, you know, why not just buy one kind of off the peg, as it were? Well, so NASA has given some funding to private companies to develop lunar landers, and those seem to be going well from what I can tell. And it seems pretty likely that what will happen is that NASA will buy at least part of this mission, possibly including the lander, from a private company. But NASA does also have to give money to those private companies to develop the landers, because right now, without a rocket, 
it's hard for any of those private companies to have a business case for developing a lander unless they have a NASA contract. I mean, isn't this part of the whole problem that NASA's working on basically a model that it used and it worked really well for the Apollo era 50 years ago, but it's not working now in the era of uh, commercial spaceflight companies? Yeah, so there's several differences between then and now, one of them being budget. Proportionally, NASA gets a lot less money now than it did during Apollo, and that slows everything down. It is, I think, time for an update, and I think that a lot of NASA's communications and a lot of what Jim Bridenstine is saying agrees with that, that it it's time to sort of up the cooperation factor and keep working with these commercial companies and with other countries to make things happen in a way that's more sustainable than the Apollo era, which, you know, ended. Yeah, well, let's talk about sustainability, because um, NASA's approach to building a rocket big enough to get us to the moon is the space launch system, uh, the SLS. And, you know, if you look at what SpaceX are doing with their sort of reusable components for their rockets, the SLS is seems like a completely well, it's, it is a completely different kind of, it's a one-use rocket, isn't it? So, you know, why don't they modernize their approach to this? Well, again, I do think that a lot of that is political rather than practical. SLS is a big job producer for the states where they're making it. And once a program has had that much money poured into it, it's hard to say, all right, well, we've got another rocket. Let's stop working on this one. So it does seem like in some ways, we're waiting for SLS when that's not strictly necessary because NASA and the government has already poured so many resources into it and because it's a big part of the economy in these areas where they're building SLS and where they have been for, for years. Well, that's an absolute nightmare if it, if it all comes to nothing. You know, if they do eventually have to say, look this is not working, or it's never going to work at the economically, it's not going to work for us to do SLS. That's going to be a nightmarishly difficult decision to make for all these people's lives, right? Like their livelihoods. Yeah, I think it's going to be, should that happen, it'll be a really hard and painful moment for whoever has to say, actually, yeah, not SLS, actually, we're going to stop doing this. I think that that's a decision that will be nearly impossible to make was one of the problems that the SLS didn't have a clear enough goal, you know, that the goalposts basically just kept changing, didn't it? And, and it's tried to do too many things. Maybe, although I think, you know, when you're building a really big rocket, regardless of what the goal is, the thing you're building doesn't change all that much. Right. And it is the biggest rocket ever made, isn't it? Or what it would be when it's, if, if it ever gets built. Yeah, it, it will be absolutely huge. <laughs> okay, look. Putting aside the details, the, the mere details of just getting to the moon, <laughs> NASA NASA says that uh, the first woman on the moon will be someone who's already been on the International Space Station. So presumably that is quite a short list of people. Yeah, so there have only been about 40 women on the ISS starting in 2000, I believe. So yeah, there's not that many people to choose from. Some of them have probably already reached their radiation limit. There are these limits for for health and safety for astronauts. So some of them probably are not able to go back to space again while remaining inside those health limits. So there's there's not that much 
to choose from, partially just because there are so few relatively women in the astronaut corps. Okay, so look, we've got a lot a lot of hurdles to overcome, political, financial, technical, uh, before we can get people back to the moon. But what about robot missions? They're going to be a bit easier. Um, are you more hopeful about some of these? Yes, absolutely. I am a big fan of orbiters, landers, and rovers. I think, to me, that feels like the sustainable way to explore our solar system. And they can do a lot of really cool stuff. They might not be able to accomplish everything that humans can do while exploring. But as we've seen on Mars, they can give us a lot of really useful information that is not only useful for planning for future human missions, which is something that we focus on a lot, but also just in and of itself teaching us about the moon. I think that for a large part, that's the way to go. It's cheaper. It's easier. Uh, You don't risk any human life at all. All right. So I guess the take home from this is although NASA has formally announced the Artemis program, um, don't hold your breath for the first woman on the moon. Yeah, I would I would say don't hold your breath yet. Thanks, Leah. Can you imagine the excitement of having another crewed mission to the moon? I just think it would be brilliant. Have you guys seen Space Force? No, I haven't. Because there, there's a brilliant scene where um, one of the characters who's a woman it's kind of preparing her her speech for her first words when she takes her first steps on the moon and uh she's planned to say it's good to be back on the moon and then because she's so she's so aware that she's the first black woman on the moon she accidentally fluffs it and says it's good to be black on the moon and i guess you have to see it but it is quite funny That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Jess, and thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. And Val, thanks to you too for being a fabulous co-host on the show. Uh, You have to bow out temporarily, don't you, to do exciting new projects, as they say. Uh, I'll be back though. (laughs) Yeah, please do come back soon. And do get in touch out there. We love hearing from you. And please spread the word about our show and urge your friends and family to check us out and subscribe. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod, and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Till next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.